you would turn in a Bible with me there, that would be great. If you don't have uh, a Bible of your own, underneath the seat in front of you is a blue one, and on page 129, you'll find the section we'll be in today. That's page 129. Uh, Lord willing, for our next 25 weeks or so, this will be our steady feast of God's Word, working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. That might sound like a long time, but when you consider the book is 31 chapters, we'll be going quickly in order to get through it in those 25 weeks. If you're not already in the habit of getting together with another person or two to read the passage that we're going to be studying on Sunday morning ahead of time, I'd encourage you to consider beginning that. You'll uh, get probably much more out of the sermons and be able to develop a relationship or two deeper if you'll uh, make a commitment to meet up with somebody simply to read ahead. You could read a chapter or two at a time and be well served by that uh, discipline. During our summer study last year, we had uh, copies of uh, a journal on Ephesians. It had Ephesians on one side and a blank page on the next. A lot of you used those. Believe it or not, this week, these guys came out. Copies of First and Second Samuel. Perfect for notes. Can I get an ooh and an ah? I'd love to give one away to someone who will use it. I don't know what to do. There's two of you. Russell. Pam. Come on up. There are uh, more back there in the bookstall if that's something you're interested in. Uh, they're just available at cost. So it might be a good tool for some of us to uh, consider using. As you'll see on the screen, we've entitled this sermon series, The Making of the King, because 1 Samuel recounts the transition from the rule of the judges to the reign of the kings of Israel. Ultimately, of course, the book better prepares us to understand Jesus, who, as we sang this morning, is the king of kings. 1 Samuel recounts events roughly 1,100 years before Jesus came. So we're dealing with very, very old material here, and yet it is alive and well this morning because this is God's Word. We'll begin, we'll begin this morning in chapter 1, verses 1, and you should be thankful you are not called on to read. There are some crazy names in here. 1 Samuel 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, who loved Tofu, son of Zufu, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. The great epic tale of 1 Samuel begins without fanfare. If you're thinking as I read that, I've never heard of Ramathim or Elkanah or Jeroham or Tohu or Penina, then you're getting the point the author's making right from the very beginning. This was a rural, obscure, inconsequential village, the kind of place where nothing happened. It was an ordinary place for ordinary people. This is where, you might say, the hillbillies were from. 
Elkanah was just a guy from a tiny town who made the idiotic decision of marrying two women at the same time. While one of his wives had kids, the other didn't. Friend, the, the genesis of the story of how God would bring the most important king the nation of Israel would ever have began here, in the hill country, in an insignificant place with people of no particular importance. We expect God today to show up in halls of power, among people with wealth, among the influential city centers where the culture is shaped. We tend to think if we're ever going to be used by God, then we have to be beautiful, powerful, unusually gifted, and super smart. But so often, God chooses a much less expected path. See, it's far more common in the biblical story for God to use nobodies from nowhere. And that will certainly be the case in this story. Let's read on. Verse 3. This man used to go up year by year from his city of worship to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli... Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Benina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? The events recorded in this paragraph took place during the days of the judges. If you think back to the order of the Old Testament books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And generally speaking, those are in chronological order. So the judges were military or political leaders who took an oversight role <clears throat> over different villages or towns or areas. The period of the judges was a very, very dark time for the nation of Israel. They were in the land God had promised them. And so Joshua was dead. They've moved into the promised land, what's today called Israel. And yet they were not experiencing all the fullness of joy that God had promised them. They weren't experiencing it because they were a rebellious and increasingly syncretistic people, meaning they looked more like the pagan nations around them then they looked like a distinct, set-apart people for God. There's a repeated phrase in the book of Judges, and it actually ends the book. It says in Judges 21-25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, the people of God were supposed to be living as a theocracy. They were literally a government under God. God was their king. And yet they had no physical earthly king. But instead of submitting to God who had done so much for them, they chose 
to rebel and to be their own authorities. As Paul David Tripp says, they chose the little kingdom of self instead of living under the great kingdom of God. In many ways, this was a season of anarchy. It was a season in which every person lived as though they knew better than God. In other words, it's a day much like our own. A day when everyone has deluded themselves into believing autonomy and relativism and self-rule work. In the days of the judges, most did not love and honor God. But in the middle of a sea of people who had turned from him, there was a man who led his family to follow him. That man was named Elkanah. Elkanah, the text tells us, would prioritize going at certain times of the year from their home in the hill country to the city of Shiloh for worship. Shiloh is where the tabernacle or where the the earliest temple was built. And in that temple was the tabernacle in which the tablets and the Ark of the Covenant was held. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, you're not familiar with this part of the biblical story, let that be no cause for you to check out. You can get caught up. The Bible that you're holding tells you all of these stories. If you'll take that Bible home and uh, set aside 30 minutes to an hour sometime this week to read through the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy, you'll see all these details of what God had done. But needless to say, this was the place where God's presence uniquely dwelled. This was where the love and the mercy and the power of God could most visibly be seen. And every year, the family would go there to worship. Elkanah would go into the temple. He'd offer up an offering, and he'd give sacrifices in order to worship and thank God. And then a portion of that sacrifice, the meat would then be taken and used and eaten by the family in an act of celebration. All the vegans in the room are shaking their head, and the meat lovers are excited. Did you notice it says that um, Hannah got a double patty? This is where this originated from. It's amazing. Penina, with the wife and all the kids, would take the occasion to ridicule Hannah, the one with no kids. You can feel her agony. Look at verse 7. So it went on year by year by year by year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. This annual occasion for joyful worship became nothing more than a reminder to Hannah of her reproach and shame. And in that precise moment of pain, Penina would lean over and she'd say something like, you surely must be a wicked sinner. If you were half the woman I am, God would have given you at least one kid. Imagine how much more Elkanah loves being with me since I'm the one making all the babies. Friends, for the ancient 
Israelites, children were seen not as an annoyance, not as an uh, interruption to life, but as the most visible, tangible sign of God's favor imaginable. To have kids was to be under the blessing of God and to be part of the fulfillment of God's promise to be building up a people for himself. It was down at the very heart of what it meant to be a human being. To have kids was to be filled with hope and living under the blessings of God. And consequently, to not have kids was to feel as though you were outside of the blessing of God. And in that moment, Penina is digging in her heels. What an evil woman. Hannah had no kids, no sense of God's favor, and a bickering rival in the home. She's so upset she can't eat. And then, husbands, take note. Sometimes it's so much better to keep your mouth shut. Are you not, am I not more to you than ten sons? You just got to pat Elkanah on the back and say, that was a nice try, but you're an idiot. (laughs) Men, sometimes there's things you can't solve. You simply need to be present. And to speak will do more harm than good. Friend, when life itself feels like a massive disappointment, when no one seems to understand, When people around you who obviously do not love God seem to be experiencing more of God's favor than you, when suffering is around every corner, when God's providence feels bitter, where do you go? Where do you turn? When everyone around you seems not to understand, and you feel all alone in a sea of people, where do you turn? This is a crucial question. It's a crucial question because some of us are there this morning. It's a crucial question because the rest of us will be there eventually. Sure, the circumstances may be different, but a universal human experience is to be disappointed with life and confused at what God's doing. Where do you go? Well, let's learn from Hannah. Look at verse 9. After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah arose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Brothers and sisters, when we are confused, disappointed, hurting, and even upset with God, the very best place to go is to God in prayer. The Bible from beginning to end is replete with hurting people who found their only refuge in their Heavenly Father's presence. 
Verse 10 indicates that Hannah was deeply distressed and that she wept bitterly. Brothers and sisters, if that's reflective of your inner posture this morning, if you are suffering and sad, then understand that you are in circumstances ripe for seeing God intervene. Because God hears and God responds to his brokenhearted people. You'll notice in verse 11 that Hannah referred to God in a rather odd title. She says, O Lord of hosts. That's one of those phrases that feels beyond our experience, so we skip by it. And yet, in the titles, in the names of God, is described his character. You see, O Lord of hosts is a way of saying, God of all might and power, Lord who commands the armies of the world and the stars of the sky, God of infinite resources. See, she knows that up to this point, the reason she hasn't gotten pregnant is because God kept her womb closed. Obviously, her husband wasn't the problem, so Hannah must have been. There was some physical issue preventing pregnancy. And yet she knew that just as God has closed that wound, he could open it. And so she went to the God of infinite resources to ask him to intervene. What a woman of faith. Now, in verse 11, you'll see there's two things taking place. There's the request that Hannah made and a vow subsequent to it. Her request is, God, don't forget me, but instead give me a son. And then her vow, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you for special service here at the temple. Now, stop and think with me about that for a minute. On behalf of a child yet to be born... Hannah made a spiritual commitment. That's extremely unusual. And even more than that, she invoked a Nazarite vow. She said, like Samson was set apart to serve you, this child won't cut his hair. He'll be fully given over to the work of God. Even in Hannah's tremendous disappointment, she didn't stop asking God for help. That's the prayer, the request. But we need to think a little more closely together about the vow. The book of 1 Samuel is what's called an Old Testament historical narrative book. Now that's a mouthful, but here's all that means. Old Testament, meaning it's in the first two-thirds of the Bible before Jesus, Historical meaning it represents real people at real places in real events. And narrative meaning it tells a story. It communicates theological ideas through real events that happened. This genre of literature in the Bible is not designed to explicitly tell you what you're supposed to do, but rather to communicate theological truths about who God is and what God has done. So to say that a different way, Hannah making a vow doesn't necessarily mean that you and I ought to try to strike deals with God. But should we? Well, the only way to answer that question is to think beyond historical narrative literature 
and think about the passages that give clear commands and to ask the question, do we have any passages commanding us to make vows to strike deals with God? This is a bit um, embarrassing, but uh, I remember as a child doing just that. When I was in third or fourth grade, I went to sleepover at a friend's house, and they were watching a movie that I knew my parents didn't want me to watch, but I watched it anyway. And uh, when my dad came and picked me up and we're driving home the next day, I felt convicted about it. And so uh, I remember <laughs> telling God, God, let's make a deal. If you will cause it to snow tonight so I don't have to go to school tomorrow, then I will tell my dad that I watched Top Gun. And so I felt really sure in my heart that that's what God was telling me to do. And so I vowed the vow, and I told my dad, and the next morning when I woke up, I opened the drapes, and guess what? There was no snow. God had not held up his end of the bargain. Friends, when we're deciding if an action is a narrative, is being modeled to us and commended for us, we have to look at the appropriateness of that action given the rest of the Bible. As we do that work in this particular way, we'd have to say it's much, much better not to ask God to intervene by striking deals with Him. He was not obligated to make it snow any more than he's obligated to any vow that you might make. And yet, in this particular circumstance, God used this bizarre means to accomplish his ends. Look at verse 12. As she, this is Hannah, continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Meaning, picture her there. She's likely on her knees, sobbing, so upset that she can't even get words out. Contritely, brokenheartedly, she's praying. She's mouthing words, but no sound. Is coming. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunken neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. In some ways... 1 Samuel chapter 1 is a soaring, amazing passage. In other ways, it's incredibly sad. Here, the only picture of a person obedient and spiritually aware 
is a broken-hearted Hannah. Even Eli, Eli was supposed to be the spiritually gifted, godly, wise, helpful leader at the temple. But instead, he is so spiritually unaware and emotionally insensitive that he mistook grief for drunkenness. Now, while Eli certainly loved God, here he is a prime example of spiritual presumption and immaturity. And with a priest like Eli and his sons, it's not at all surprising that the people wandered from God. Brothers and sisters, so often the health of spiritual leaders will inevitably determine the health of the whole congregation. It was that way in ancient Israel, and it's that way today. Hannah, as she met the mistaken opposition of Eli, pressed back and gently said, I'm not drunk in body. I'm brokenhearted in spirit. Now, to his credit, it seems that Eli quickly understood that he misunderstood. He had made a mess of himself. And so in verse 17, he gives her a blessing. Eli told Hannah to go in peace. And then in a way we're rather unfamiliar with, even though we literally end every worship gathering this way, Eli used the occasion to speak a word of blessing over Hannah. He didn't say, God has just told me you're going to get what you asked for. He, in essence, said, may God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he light up your countenance and give you peace. Hannah's response to all of this is probably the most amazing part of the whole story. She came to God brokenhearted, pleading for help, literally nowhere else to go. And the priest wished her well and asked God to meet her request. Without knowing whether he would say yes or no, she went away satisfied. Why? We know she went away satisfied because the passage says that she left and her face was no longer sad and she ate. Remember, we just read a few minutes ago that she was so brokenhearted she couldn't even eat. Have you been there? Where the grief is so heavy. You can do nothing but sob. Friends, Hannah was satisfied because the matter was now in God's hands. She was at peace. Not because the heavens opened and she heard the audible voice of God and she felt in her womb a baby beginning to grow, but simply because she'd taken the issue to the Lord of hosts and asked for his mercy, and then entrusted God to do what he knows to be best. Brothers and sisters, that's what prayer is. Prayer is taking to God whatever is on our hearts, and then saying in the words of Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. As people who know the great grace and love of God, we can be content with whatever God gives us 
as we lay our request before Him. We can have Hannah's experience. The book of Philippians chapter 4 makes this point so explicitly well. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, Hannah had known nothing but anxiety as she came to the temple. But as she left, she knew nothing but peace. Practically speaking, that makes no sense. Her circumstances hadn't changed. But she had met with God and therefore found the peace of God. So, brothers and sisters, what disappointment are you carrying this morning? What problem is causing you great anxiety and sadness? Follow Hannah's lead. Take it to God in prayer. The Lord of hosts sees. He hears. He listens. He knows. He responds. Verse 19, they, they remember who they is, Hannah has left the temple, gone back to the family, made up of a husband that tries but messes up, an incredibly wicked Penina, a whole bunch of children, and Hannah. They arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. In kindness, God chose to say yes to Hannah's prayer. He chose to give her exactly what she asked for. Whatever physical issue had prevented pregnancy, God resolved. And consequently, this barren woman now knew the joy of motherhood. Ladies, can you imagine her happiness when she realized she was pregnant? She had month after month after month after month, year after year after year, had a tangible reminder of her guilt and shame and brokenheartedness. But then came a different month. Then came a positive pregnancy test. Imagine if she realized God said yes. Think about her emotions as that baby grew and she felt Samuel kick for the first time. Imagine her feeling the hiccups of that little baby boy. And then imagine as the agony of labor turned into the joy of holding that little answer to prayer. Amazing thought. Hannah named the boy Samuel. Now, as we work our way through this book over the next 31 chapters, we'll see three primary human characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. Samuel is the one that will occupy the front end of the story. Samuel, we'll come to find out, 
would play an enormous role in the nation of Israel. God would use him to be the final judge in Israel and to be the human agent who would appoint the first kings of Israel, and in fact, the most important king. From his earliest days as a little boy to his most difficult days as an old man, we will find Samuel laboring for God and in many ways doing so faithfully. We'll find later in the story that for a season Samuel was the most powerful and important leader in Israel. But here in 1 Samuel, he's just a baby. A baby born to an ordinary place, to an ordinary mother. A baby with no kingly lineage, no silver spoon in his mouth, no guaranteed entrance into an Ivy League school, no prominent degree. His parents likely wore tattered clothes and were missing teeth. By worldly standards, Samuel was a nobody. If you and I were scripting the story of how God would bring the most famous king in the entire Old Testament to rule, it certainly wouldn't have been through a hillbilly nobody from a massively dysfunctional home. And yet that's exactly what God did. The birth of Samuel came in a most unusual and unexpected way. He's born to an insignificant family in a nothing town to a mother who had known nothing but heartache and grief. Brothers and sisters, God does not work like we expect him to. God is surprising. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God does better than we ever expect at working with leftovers. This truth shines brightest as we gaze at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you see, someone else would come later who was also born to a nothing mother in a nothing town of no special pedigree. And this one would grow up to bear his cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Friends, God has a PhD in doing miracles nobodies. This is what he does. He takes inconsequential people from inconsequential places and through them brings about his glorious work. In Jesus, it looked like he was a nobody. And certainly as he hung on the cross and died a criminal's torturous death, it appeared that God lost but over and over and over and over again, God wins in the unexpected ways. What appears like defeat is God shining through in victory. Make no mistake, Samuel would grow up to be a shining example 
Samuel would grow up to be a man God would use greatly. If we take this whole sermon and boil it down into a sentence, and no, I can't do that and just leave you, but if we do so now, then we could say something like this, God hears and God uses the faith-filled, powerless, and afflicted for his good pleasure. All that Hannah brought was her faith. She was powerless and afflicted, and yet that's all it took. God hears and God uses the faith-filled powerless for his good pleasure. Brothers and sisters, some 3,100 years ago, as they gathered at Shiloh, God heard Hannah's prayer. And some 3,100 years later, as we gather, we too are inconsequential people. Within a generation, outside of your immediate family, no one is going to remember you. But don't be fooled. God's specialty is using people like you and me for his good pleasure. Father, thank you that you heard Hannah's prayer. Thank you that in grace and mercy you chose to intervene in her life. Thank you that in Christ, we who know you have seen you intervene in our lives in the most extraordinary way. Father, it's so easy for us to think you can't do much through people like us or through a church like this. And yet right out of the gate, before we even finish the first chapter, we are rebuked in that. For over and over and over and over again in the biblical story, God, you specialize in using surprising people. We pray, God, that as you fill us with faith, even when we are brokenhearted and afflicted, that you would use us for your good pleasure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, Chuck, for helping us see so clearly how God works through ordinary people.